Uh, I uh, noticed something in the Inquirer, the Philadelphia Inquirer, which is one of my favorite humor papers. It's a really great paper. I mean, they really, they really say it. Uh, I was uh, reading a piece in there about one of my my own favorite folk heroes, Robin Hood. You know, there's a lot of controversy about Robin Hood. You remember Robin Hood? He was very, you know, terrific. In fact, I must say this, and I, I, I hope I'm not uh, offending anybody out there, but I made... One of, oh, yes, actually, I do hope I'm offending a few people. I say, have you offended anyone today? And that's the slogan you should ask yourself. And if you go to bed at night without having offended at least one person, you have failed your duties as a 20th century, uh, 1970 type citizen. I mean, after all, we're living in aggressive times. You must become involved. And to become involved, you must offend somebody. I mean, just for the sake of offending. Which can be an exciting sport, and, and in fact, give you a hell of a lot of practice running. You develop the back muscles, where you get kicked to several times. Posterior muscles, actually. Right, uh, <laughs> but uh, that's something else. I don't want to you know, get into that uh, issue there. But uh, I do say that Robin Hood is an important part of my early life. And uh, the reason this is so is because at the age of nine, I performed in a uh, pageant. Of, uh, well, it was actually a play. It was a one-actor. We had pretty interesting values going for it. I must say that it was the dialogue was live, although some of the characterizations, I must, even at this point, I'm still buzzed at the guy that got, uh, you know, the plum role, Robin Hood. He was very wooden. The only reason he got it, he's six foot nine, and, and, and you know, and in third grade, when you're six feet nine, you're going to get a lot of roles, which is why he got it. But uh, and it was a rotten shot with a bow and arrow, which is not the thing that Robin Hood could be. But nevertheless, I played a role in a production called Robin Hood of Nottingham. And uh, what role do you think I played? Don't say Friar Tuck. It wasn't me. Hey, Alex Joshua played Friar Tuck. Friar Tuck. And they had a pillow, and he went around and said, "Ho, ho, ho!" Uh, but uh, what what role do you think I played? Do you remember that crowd? Do you remember some of them? Alan, uh, Alan Adale. Do you remember all those guys? Firetop, Will Scarlet. Remember him? Remember the Maid Marion? I did not play that role. And I'll tell you who did. You serious? We had a girl named Lorraine Morris, who was the hottest thing to hit third grade. I'll tell you, Lorraine Morris was... <laughs> when you look back in your life, there's always girls that you were fantastically hung on. You know, you'd, you'd see from the middle distance. You never got very close to them, but they were always there. And, the, you know, the big, tall guys like Jack Robertson went out with them. But uh, Lorraine Morris, she was, I'll tell you, she was to the third grade what Raquel Welch is to a Playboy reader. And, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, she went all the way. And uh, she played Maid Marion. And uh, what do you think I played? Huh? Sheriff? No, no, I'm not a pink fig rat. Little John? No, no, no. In fact, when, when I was in, in, in third grade, I was a head and a half taller than everybody else. I couldn't play Little John. Uh, it was only later when I started to wear earphones on the top of my head that weighed nine pounds a piece that I became Little John. And uh, that was another period. But at that time, at that time, you know, I was right up there with the rest of them. Now, what, uh, what, well, who do you think I played? Well, I'll tell you. I'll admit to whom I played. I played Alan Adale. Remember Alan? That was Alan Adale. Very gassy. And uh, I, I, in fact, we were taken to see, the entire cast was taken to see Richard Green. 
playing Robin Hood. Do you remember Richard Green playing Robin Hood, the movie? And it was in this unbelievable, ghastly technicolor. He had an orange face. It was the first thing I remember about him. And I was, uh, you know, I couldn't believe that uh, Robin Hood had an orange face and dimples. Somehow it didn't quite fit my idea of what uh, Robin Hood looked like. And I remember, you know, sitting back there and observing the actor who played Alan Adele and uh, realizing, of course, that uh, had, although his grasp of the character was somewhat tenuous, he carried it off by sheer personality, which I recognized him at that time as pure fakery. And I... It wasn't a One thing about a kid, he believes that he knows everything. There has never been a kid been born, even since the days of Julius Caesar, who did not believe that he had a firm grasp on truth and reality. And... Uh, Anybody who was older than he was was a phony think and uh, had sold out and could never possibly understand the deep passions that flowed through the breast of whatever you know, age you are. And so uh, at that point already, I'm putting down you know, guys like Clark Gable and then, oh, come on, and to say to Schwartz, are you kidding? Mr. Green, an actor, yeah, get out. <laughs> you know, I could see myself playing Robin Hood. But nevertheless... Now, there's a whole big thing about Robin Hood. And you know, it, it's kind of discouraging to find out that Robin Hood was born Robert Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald, no wonder he changed his name. Robert Fitzgerald in Loxley Village, Nottinghamshire, in 1160. And he died 87 years later near Huddlefield. And then, you know, 87 years old, you never think of him that way. And some scholars are even skeptical of that. His name was not Hood at all. And it says there's a lot of baloney about him taken from the rich to give to the poor. That was really baloney. So it says he started that myth. <laughs> you know, after all, he was he was a very early rationalizer. He was a very early guy. And went, hardly anybody will admit, you know, that he's just knocking over this first national bank. He always says, well, I'm knocking it over because it represents the rotten, crummy establishment. And, you know, et cetera, dot, 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 fill it in. Nobody ever says, I'm after the cabbage. But uh, he, uh, he, on the other hand, you see, Robin, that's not only that, according to contemporary records, he was a rotten shot. So that's kind of discouraging. Why, everything, everywhere you look, it's all crumbling around you. The Egyptians are selling the pharaohs out now. You can buy a pharaoh. Did you know that? Sure. Yeah, you can have a whole room made up. You can buy Ramesses III if you want. Yeah, you can buy the actual one. You can buy his twin, his sacred ibis. You can buy his sacred cat. Three of the sacred hand ladies come out neatly encased in, uh, in mummy's cases. And you can have them made into coffee tables and stuff, and they'll even decorate the room for you. So, I mean, where's it all going to end? The day, the day will come by the year 2750 when somebody will buy Millard Fillmore, including the coffin and his headstone, and he'll have a thing called a Millard Fillmore conversational uh, cocktail and cheese dip room. And uh, everyone will go there. <laughs> sure. And uh, that is, if you're, you know, if you're really rich, you can afford a, a president's body. You'll be able to buy uh, George Washington if you're really rich. I mean, if you're a master's or something. But uh, if, if you're just medium rich, you'll be able to settle for, uh, say, uh, oh, uh, possibly Tyler. Uh, you know, you can go for complete set. Or, or uh, on the other hand, you know, on the other hand, if, if you're, you know, it's kind of a second-rate rich guy, you can buy, say, major legislators of the period. You can buy a wig assemblyman. And uh, you can try to assemble your, your poorly set, you know, of the pre-revolutionary days. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you think that, you know, this, this is not so far from the truth. It'll eventually happen. I mean, they'll be selling you one day, friend, for a coffee table. 
Well, I hope you make a good one. At least, you know, you want to be a decent coffee table. You know, speaking of uh, of moments here, a convertible... What is this? Oh, come on. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> I just heard an obscene joke. Came out of the time. I'm going to hear a lot of obscene... Speaking of obscene jokes, uh, did you hear about that snake the other day? Oh, yeah. In Ventura, California, it's a sneaky snake. Louis Chacon told sheriff's deputies, and by the way, I'm going to give you a word of warning here. Uh, bring in the warning music there. Drum roll, please. Please. Drum roll, warning, warning, warning. This is a warning. We set that. Warning. That is a warning. That is a warning that tells you that right now we're about to play a commercial, and you can run right now into the gun. Head comes. Hey, hit it. Uh, quick. This is Fred Coy here. This is W.O.R. New York. And they were right here in the heart of where it's happening. Plum City. That's our salute tonight to John Lindsay, who leads us every night in our fun cheers. Hooray for good old Sixth Avenue. Oh, how I love you, too, blue. Let's see, Ventura, California. It's a sneaky snake. This is going to be a sick story. And, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, I don't know how I played to approach this, but, you know, there's always a basic fear people have of, of something, just something. It's always out there, you know, something's out. Uh, it's some crazy. And uh, you, you, this is what the fear of the dark stems from. You always think something there. Something. And what is it? Something. You look out over the ocean. Have you ever been on the, on the ocean at night? You always have a feeling that there is something out there. And the blackness. Down in the bottom of the ocean someplace. And you can understand why the ancients, the medieval ancients, uh, envisioned giant monsters living all over the ocean. Great big things. You know, you see pictures of them on the maps and stuff. One day, one of them is going to grab you. I mean, they're there. No, no, they're, it's, a, it's a basic fear people have. Well, look for this story. You probably heard it from Ventura, California. This guy moved into a house, see? That's a new house. He just moved into the house. And uh, he goes to the John, saying he's in there, and he's, uh, he's just washing his hands. And the John, that's actually what he's doing. He washes his hands, and then he's in this brand new house. But he sees something in the mirror. I can't believe it. You know, he's looking in the mirror, he's washing his hands. He looks down at the John, which he sees in the mirror. Speaking out of John, you know, it's the John. You know the see that? There's the head of this big snake. Comes right out of John and disappears back into the bowl. What the hell is this? And he turns around and it's not in there. Can't see it. So he goes rushing out into the next room. Oh, hell, Mabel! You know, that's, uh, this is the thing everybody's secretly afraid of. Something like that's going to happen anyway. So he goes running around. Hey, Mabel, oh, well! It's just, oh, you're out of your mind. You're seeing snakes now. I told you about the martinis. And uh, he goes, thanks for going right there. Well, it seems that this house has two Johns in it. One downstairs and one upstairs. And so about a half an hour later, Mabel's up there, see? And uh, she's plucking her eyebrows or something. And all of a sudden... Out of John comes his big head, looks around, goes, ah! And she takes, ah! And he zap, he's gone again. The snake is coming out of the John. Well, they call the cops, and they arrive, and everybody, you know, says, oh, come on, what are you giving us? They're, they're very, the way the piece in the papers is skeptical, which means, you know, they started to beat him around the head with rubber truncheons and telling him he's going to have to stop giving up that LSD or else they're going to catch him with an arm and all that stuff and you know, beat him around the head and shoulders. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, this time, uh, finally they left. The cops left. They, they left. And about two days later, this snake is just getting him. He says, it's becoming bolder. 
It now rises totally out of the bowl and leers at him every time he comes into the john. Well, the deputies went to the to the house, and this time they staked it out and they waited. And sure enough, a five-foot-long anaconda peered out of the bowl. Now, do you know, friends, what an anaconda is? Now, in, in certain parts of South America, in fact, in the, in the Amazonian section of South America, there are certain native tribes that make of the anaconda a god. It's a big, bad snake. And uh, it, what it does really is crush its victim. It's not a poisonous snake. It just grabs and just crushes the, you know, the, the living you-know-what out of you. It just grabs a hole and squeezes so you've got about 20 seconds. And uh, nevertheless, before they could grab him, the sheriff says, Grab him! Quick, Charlie! Before they could grab him, he retreated down the hole. You know, down in, he goes, animal control officers were called, but the anaconda kept ducking out of sight. Finally, the toilet was removed from its morning, and they caught him with a noose and took it off to a shelter. No one knows where the anaconda from. And I know, it's the thing we're always afraid of. <laughs> I mean, everybody's got an anaconda in his john somewhere, or someplace, or something there. Well, I want to tell you, I'm going to tell you that everybody's had an experience with a snake at one time or another. If you've ever been outside of the city, a lot of people haven't. And so they, they really, you know, this is all hypothetical. But I, the, the worst snake experience that I can remember came one time when I was in the Army. We had a real snake experience. And we're, we're living in the tropics. You got it? Oh, was it hot. Oh, man. You know, I want to tell you this, that the one thing I remember about the Army, and in fact, this is true of any armed service. This is probably true of most guys' jobs, too, when, when all is said and done. But uh, ineffable, palpable, physical, tasteable boredom. You could taste it. You know, boredom has its taste. You know how boredom tastes? Well, it tastes faintly metallic. It tastes a little bit like if you take your tongue and you put it on a piece of iron, like a, like a, uh, like a, the bottom of an old rusty iron or maybe a nail, and you hold your tongue on it for a while, and then you take the nail away, and you taste it. You know, that funny taste is raging in the top. That's the way boredom tastes. I know. Anybody who's sat on the edge of a bunk in the Army for three years knows that taste very well. And it comes and goes. It depends on, you know, how the French toast was that morning. Or, uh, you know, whether or not they had beet salad for supper, which the Army seems to go for. Beet salad, the big thing. They used to have beet Kool-Aid. Uh, they flavored stuff with beets. Yeah, you know, so, so, I don't know, the Army's a big thing on beets. So, you sit on the edge of your bunk and you just taste it. And there's only one or two ways to get that out of your system for a brief moment. One is to get out of the PX and get a beer. And uh, they, they have iron-flavored beer down there just to keep you in there. <laughs> that is true. Uh, and also, you go down to the... And you wait in line and get a Milky Way. Now, I'm not a Milky Way fan, but in the Army, you'll eat anything that they've got at the PX. It's for sale. And so, one afternoon, we're sitting in this barracks, and the temperature is 109 degrees. And this is an, an Army company that has been together now for about a year and a half, two years. This is not a company of rookies which is really different. Most movies are made about rookies. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you this, what interests me about most movies about the Army is that all the people in those movies act like they've been in the Army about seven or eight days. Even if they're supposed to be the lieutenant, 
or the you know the sergeant. Because when when you're in the army about a year, you don't talk about this stuff that they have you talk about in the army. Like nobody talks about the food in the army. The minute the minute uh, somebody says, "Oh wow, KP." Uh, in, in one of these army movies, you know that uh, this is written by a guy that one was never in, or he, if he was in, he doesn't remember it very well. And if he doesn't even remember it very well and was in, we'll say, he's writing for the yuck who believes that the people talk like that in the army. Yeah, the minute somebody in, the, in, the, in a movie says, uh, Hey, fellas, would you like to see a picture of my girl? Ah, cop. If anybody ever tried that in Company K, I think he would have been strangled by thumbs being placed on opposite sides of his windpipe and held there until his eyeballs bugged out. Nobody would use a picture of that Goyle. And, uh, you know, the, 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 another thing they always show in Army movies is, fellas, it's always a guy supposedly from Brooklyn that does this, you know, usually played by uh, Eddie Bracken. Fellas, you know what the first thing I'm going to do when I get out of the Army? And of course, then they all go, ah, yeah, la, la, la. He said, no, no, after that, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go and watch the Dodgers play. Oh, come on. If anybody tried that in Company K, he would have been laughed right out into the Company Street. Much more while guys would do takeoffs on Army movies. You ever see him do that? Uh, 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 yeah, I remember a guy coming in uh, one day and sitting down on the edge of his bunk and, uh, we, 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 you know, there were thousands of army movies always being shown. And guys got so they were doing takeoffs on them all the time. And so he comes in there and uh, he sat on the edge of his bunk and he looked around at everybody and everybody's just sitting in one guy's polishing his shoes, another guy's working on his belt, another guy's just sitting looking off in the middle distance. Funny, he says, Hey, fellas. And they all looked up and said, Hey, fellas, I just got a letter from my girl. Nine guys look up. You know, right out of a, you know, right out of a, out of a scene from a Van Johnson movie. And he's like, just got a letter from my grand. And he looks real sad up at the sky. And I think she's going out with another song. It's a dear John letter. And the place breaks up. This is a civilian idea of the way they are now. As a matter of fact, the greatest thing that happened to most guys was to get the dear John letter. Which you've been worrying about for years. You know, think, oh, I'm coming someday, I'm going to have to get back to that pig. You know, because when you get in the army, you learn a lot of things. You, know, you, don't, you don't want to go back to F.C. Jane Albury, you see. And uh, the best thing that happens to many guys, I remember one guy saying, oh, my God, she's off my back. Hey, fellas. Hey, look, I got a lot of my girl get married. Let's go out and get work. Oh, my God, how great. Well, now, you don't ever see that scene. And that's exactly what happened one day. A guy says he got a letter from his girl and she just got married. He says, what's going to the best thing to happen in years? Well, <laughs> that is not said to the home folks. So, uh, nevertheless, on this particular day, yeah, it's hot. Oh, boy, it's hot. And it's a normal, just totally normal operational day. Now, an operational day is a day in which nothing happens and the company is doing what it's supposed to do which is run this radar set. Well, actually, our company was not supposed to run the radar set. It was supposed to fix the radar set all the time. We were supposed to run it, but we'd given that up. So we were perpetually repairing our radar set, which never worked. And once in a while, when you know, it looked like it worked because the scope saw worked, but it never picked anything up. Uh, that was, I'm serious. That, that sounds funny, but I remember we had $2.5 million worth of stuff sitting out there on those wheels. They, 
and, and it was running like mad. It was making hums and sending out the St. Elmo's fire, and boy, you could draw an arc seven feet long from this thing. If you got a, you know, lead pencil up near the dipoles, and guys filling to their teeth were glowing. And I remember the first time we discovered it was all a hoax and a sham. Case your kids. Have you ever wondered, you know, you read about these guys in Vietnam and, and uh, you know, there's a helicopter crashes or, or uh, the Viet Cong sneak up and, uh, and they blow them up or something. You wonder how they got so close with, with all this radar and all that stuff. Well, most of the stuff is like everything else you've got around your house. It doesn't work. I mean, it just doesn't work. You've got it there and, and uh, you've got your soldering iron, you've got your, all your test equipment going all the time. The test equipment never fails. It always works. I never saw a signal generator stop. All the years I was in, I never once saw an oscilloscope stop. But on the other hand, I never saw a radar set work. So uh, we, we had this great big truck full of uh, test equipment. And that was where we spent all our time. So we were always running on our testing the tubes and tuning the dipoles and stuff. And uh, on this big day, when we had this thing one, it was the first time we actually had it fired up. It really called a semi-portable mobile radar had 19 trucks about the size of uh, old semi-tractor trailers, you know. It'd be like if you decided to move Queens, uh, maybe move Staten Island. That was about how movable it was. But uh, we set this thing up. It took us about three or four, five weeks to get it all set up, and we were really proud of it. Emily, they called it. And somehow that name got attached. It was called Emily. Big old rotten Emily. So uh, this was our radar set, and we got involved with it. You know, it was our thing. That was tremendous. It's painted with this beautiful soft GI green. That's a soft OD touch. Had dipoles. And it had a tremendous mass. Big, big sets of the. Well, not only dipoles, a big parabolic reflectors that there were behind the dipoles. And it had a magnetron oscillator, and it had a it had a power supply that would turn out 15,000 volts at like 5 amps. Tremendous. Oh, boy, the thing was here. And you could hear it humming and. It had teeth and oh, actually touched. And you grab the very act and you turn up the power and you could see 5,000 volts, 10,000 volts on a plate, 12,500 volts, and it's all... Oh, it's humming like belly be damned. And paint almost fire at night to drift out around the parabolic reflectors. What a sense of power we have. Company K attached to its giant radar set. 36 children to this vast wasteland of life, we've at last found our Moby Dick, and we're trying to get it working. Well, after four weeks of messing around with the uh, signal generators, messing around with all the VTVMs, and messing around with all the square wave and stuff, it is now theoretically working. Yep. The beautiful square waves on the scope. I remember standing out with a signal generator 1,000 yards away, and I turned up the signal generator. And the guy's, hey, yeah, we're picking you up. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And they're lining it all up. Looks great. And then that day came when, when, <laughs> when five airplanes in formation at about, uh, roughly about 3,000 feet above the surface, about a half a mile away, big fat airplane just went, drones right across the field of our radar. I said, nothing. But nothing but grass on him. Scope. And, you know, we saw that we could see him right out there flying around. And, and we were trying to get him adjusted here. Come on, there you go. On the azimuth. For crying out loud, adjust the azimuth. No, it's you guys on the elevation. Get it. You're lining up. You got it all screwed up. Now, come on. We tried. Nothing. We never picked him up. Well, at that moment, a great suspicion began to settle down into Company K. 
the giant hoax had been perpetrated. But this piece of equipment was just a piece of equipment. And it was an end in itself. I mean, its function was, you know, there it was. Its function was to be a radar set. That didn't mean its function was to pick a plane. Its function was to be a radar set. Well, then we realized what our function was. To play the game. To pretend that it was a radar set. And to pretend that it was working. And that was Lieutenant Cherry's game, too, you see. Our lieutenant, our fearless leader. And that he used to come, he had this look of sadness around the eyes. And again, that's another thing. All, all movies show officers to be total dildocks. I rarely found one in the Army that was, which is what bugged me very much. <laughs> you know, I went in, you know, believe me, I had the world by the you-know-what, you know, and I was going to tell all these second lieutenants, and I discovered that all of them had PhDs, MAs, and uh, <laughs> everything else going with them. Seven of them. In fact, I remember two, two second lieutenants who were assigned to our company were competing authors, one of whom had written two major poems on world history. And you know, what are you going to do? You know, you, 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 you believe the movies. You know, you believe Cat 22, that all of them are dopey dildocks except your friend, your science. Not so. It just ain't that way in life. It really bothers you to find life doesn't match Mike Nichols' view of it. So, uh, nevertheless, here's Lieutenant Cherry. See, coincidentally, had an M.A. And, a ma and his master's was in English, in case you're curious. And he had this, this, uh, the sad look of a man around the eyes who knew too much. You can know too much. And uh, he suspected from the very beginning that Company K was a fraud and a sham. And he was the head of the fraud and the sham. Well, we, being, you know, pure yardbirds, at that point, after two years in the army, had rapidly risen up to the chain of command and was now an acting corporal. And uh, <laughs> we at the bottom of the chain of command, you see, we still believed in... You know, not only, well, it might have been a sham and a fraud, but we were going to make it work. Lieutenant Cherry knew better. And so he would come around the company area once in a while with this, this kind of sad look in the eye. And uh, with him was Kowalski, who was our first sergeant. See, Kowalski didn't give a damn whether it was a fraud or a sham or not, as long as the morning report was made out every morning. That's what he was interested in. And he wanted to make sure that everybody got written down that was going to be on sick call. He wanted to make sure the duty roster was okay for the day. That's all. Shaman or fraud be damned. And so Kowalski would walk out with his clip on. All right, you guys. Men, we're going to do another signal analysis. We're going to work on a systems analysis today. And I want the, uh, I want the uh, t antenna tuning team to be ready to go to work at, uh, let's see, uh, 0230 at uh, 0100. I want you guys to assemble out here. We want them, uh, all them signal generators warmed up, ready to go. And Lieutenant Terry would say nothing. He knew what it was going to do. And he knew what it was about. And he would retreat back into his orderly tent and say nothing. Now, this day, though, was an operational day. The antenna tuning team was out there tuning the antenna, as they always did. And tuning the dipole, which never stayed in tune more than eight and a half milliseconds. In fact, they, they, there was a rumor around that if a, if a flight of gnats flew by, within a 200-yard radius, our antennas went out of tune. And there was some truth in that. And then, uh, on the other hand, the power supply squad was continually working on its relays. There was a rumor around at that point that if, uh, if a fly got on one of the relay contacts and sat down for a couple of minutes, corrosion would sit in instantly and dirty up the contacts 
and all the relays would not work. Which was true. They rarely did. That had to be some explanation. So they were working on the power supply. Then there was the Keir team. You've never heard of the Keir in a radar set. It is an integral part, probably the heart of the radar set. It is the highly precise bit of electronic equipment which keys the radar set. Now, as you know, they send out pulses. You know how radar works. Boop, boop, boop. I'm simplifying it very much. Boop, 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 boop. Little pulses are sent out. Well, now they strike this reflecting surface. Uh, theoretically, an airplane, we'll say, or some other flying object, which we are about to detect, right? So it's a boop, boop, boop. These little pulses fly out, and they hit the side of the airplane. And they bounce back. And your receivers, which are so sensitive, like uh, to a uh, .0001 sensitivity, you can pick up those tiny reflections that bounce off the side of that airplane. And by doing that, you can measure how long it took for that pulse to go all the way up, hit the airplane, and bounce all the way back. Now, how we do this is beyond the scope of this course. And I'll not tell you about the, you know, measuring the baseline of a, an oscilloscope that's on the time base versus the pulse rate and all. We will not bring that in tonight. However, suffice it to say, by some magic, it is done. Providing this little thing that goes boop, 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 boop is keyed properly. Ours never did. In fact, ours would go boop, 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 boop which would make the airplane seem to be, at one moment, three miles away, seven miles away, 36 miles away, or non-existent. And you had a multiple-choice question there. You could decide which one you wanted, with our radar set. And we would take a multiple-choice. In fact, I remember a battery commander calling up saying, Hey, I hear you guys have got an incoming bandit tip type that. Somebody says, Yes, he's either seven miles away, 26 miles away, 34 miles away, or as a bird. He said, okay, well, I think I'll take 47. And then you hear, boom, 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 boom. They're firing out there, $18 a shell, and they're blasting away at 400 shells a minute at a, at, a, at a non-existent cloud 47 miles away. Actually, the airplane was coming from the underside, blew up the anti-aircraft battery, and that was the end of the whole ball game. But uh, it didn't matter. We survived, so we're okay. And uh, that's, uh, that's the name of the game. As long as you're, <laughs> as long as you're up, to survive. So nevertheless... Here we are sitting there at an operational day. I hope this uh, technical in information is not boring you. Right? It isn't, right? This is what you didn't get out of Catch-22. We did not have any minder-minder binders in our outfit. Well, actually, all of us were minder-minder binders. So what is it? Milo Minder Binders? Whatever his name is. We were all Josarian. We were all minder, Milo Minder Binders. We were, and, and I never did find major, 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 major. But uh, as long as Mike Nichols did, I guess that's okay. So, uh, nevertheless, it's an operational thing. Little did any of us realize in Company King that that we were about to have one of our historic days, which would go into the historic memory book that we all carry with us. Never mentioned, but carry with us. It was a very embarrassing moment. It was hot. The barracks were sweltering. We had these low camouflage barracks laid among the palmettos. The sun was rocking down. And our old radar set was making its usual noise. It, they, you know, made a nice noise. It made us feel something was happening. The guys are working away down in the keying section. And I come walking into the barracks, sweating, wearing my... You're nothing but GI shorts. And I had a tremendous case of heat rash. I could taste the boredom. And uh, I, I, uh, I, I was a response that day because... Oh, yeah, a lot of things have been going on. 
I've been expecting a promotion to full PFC. Up to this point, I've been acting PFC, you know, and I've been waiting for my full strike to arrive. Nothing happened since. And I got my usual mail call. That'll set you off, man. Usual mail call. 17 papers from home. The idea you want to read the hometown newspapers, I never know, but they always would arrive, and they'd arrive in a big bundle. I was just taking them home in the weeds without even holding them. Just throw them over there. There's a big pile of hometown newspapers back in a big drift back of our barracks. So, uh, you know, it's been one of those days, so I come walking into the barracks. There's a guy laying there flat out, sleeping. Goldberg. And he's got his pipe clamped in his mouth. He smoked rose petals tobacco. With greenish purple. He would smoke this, this tobacco that was so heavy, so aromatic, it made our barracks smell like a tourist. Uh, well, actually, like a Turkish house of ill fame on a Saturday night after the fleet had been in, you know? And he's lying there with his pipe and he's snoring away, snoring through that rotten, stinking pipe of his. You ever heard a man snore through his pipe? Well, I remember it would go, it would go bubbles would come out of the pipe, this black nicotine. He's laying there, sweat pouring off his fat body. And as I look at Golden Rose, I sit down on my bunk. I can't believe it. In the middle of it, right in the middle of the aisle, coming right down from the far exit, past the butt camp. Is the biggest mother snake I ever saw in my life. A snake. He's just going, oh. Now snakes go crawling. Oh. And he stopped for a minute. He just stopped. You know, like 27 feet long. And I, I, this, you know, everything just grew in an instant. I was no longer bored. I, I was no longer, you know, interested in the, in the, in the supper we were going to have that night. SOS. I wasn't looking forward to nothing. All of a sudden, I, all I can see is the snake. And I hollered, Goldberg! Snake! And Goldberg jumped up. His pipe is stuck in his mouth. And he sees the snake. Well, Goldberg weighed about 700 pounds. And all he had on was his G.I. shorts. They split right up the back. It, it, they just out of... I'm sorry, it was a, it was a gross thing. His, his, his shorts split right up the back, and he just flew right out the screen door. And his pipe flies up, and 40 guys fall off the radar set and come running like men, and they all come pouring up to the back, and sure enough, they're all peering in. There's a giant snake. Snake, snake! And it, it, it spread like wildfire throughout the company. Guys burnt themselves with soldering iron. <laughs> snake, snake, oh, snake, snake! And guys were running around, and, every, and instantly, three guys went into the room. One guy went into the supply room and came back out with tools. 45 caliber submachine guns, which was our armament. I want to tell you, have you ever seen sun, sh really beautiful sun, shining on the glinting blue barrel of a Thompson submachine gun with a full clip of ammunition hanging underneath a big barrel clip, you know? And these guys come out, where are you? Quick, quick. The sweat, they're all excited. Quick. Guys were grabbing carbines. <laughs> Everybody's rushing down to the barracks. They and, and one or two rounds actually were fired. Pow, pow, guys shooting. And, of course, that got everybody else. Company P, which was about 700 yards off to our left, you could hear yelling from Company P, you know, where at last, long last, we're being attacked. You know, this is happening. You pow, pow, another shot. And then it Out of the barracks comes Roger Nash. We had this real wise guy from... from Aniston, Alabama. Paul skinny guy and says, what are you guys talking about? 
Did you guys afraid of a little old milk snake? Did you see any of you city guys know a little old milk snake ain't gonna hurt nobody? Give me a little snake. Make him crawl around. He packs it on the head. He's a little old milk snake. I think I'll take this for a pet. And another legend had entered the despeckled legendary book of company kids. A total collection of malcontents, misfits, and the worst radar set that was ever put out by the Westinghouse Corporation. Howard, yes, I think I'm going to call Howard after I'm Sergeant Howard Kowalski. And we just stood around, guys with 45 caliber rockos in their hands, guys with full clips of ammunition for the carbines, two guys with 45 caliber Thompson submachine guns. And that little old snake just looked at us, winked at eye, and man, it's a little snake you're going to hurt anybody. You guys put them shooting irons, that's like a bunch of silly fools.